So Money episode 57, Nicole Lappin. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day to all of you. Welcome back to So Money. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. So have you ever felt or currently feel super confused by all the financial concepts and jargon out there from IRAs, index funds, inflation, uh, you name it, blah, 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 blah. Well, today's guest totally shared these insecurities at one point in her life. In fact, she admits that her... uh, her boyfriend, once upon a time, broke up with her because she was not able to keep up with all the money talk amongst his Wall Street friends. Well, excuse me. Too bad for them now. Fast forward a decade later, she has become a much admired financial journalist and a money expert. In addition to having worked as a business anchor at CNN and CNBC, she has contributed to MSNBC, The Today Show, as well as Bloomberg Television. She now owns her own production company and is the money correspondent for The Wendy Williams Show and The Insider. Her name is Nicole Lappin. She's also just launched a new book called Rich Bitch, a 12-step plan in which she shares her experiences, mistakes and all, of getting her own finances in order. Money is typically an off-limits conversation, but Nicole says nothing is off-limits in this book and nothing was off-limits in our conversation. Three takeaways from our talk, why and how Nicole got herself into debt way back when and ultimately back on her feet. Two, what made her leave a cushy job at CNBC and launch her own company, Fearless? And three, the number one question we should always be ready to answer. Without further ado, here is Nicole Lappin. Nicole Lappin, welcome to So Money, girl. It is so good to be on So Money, and you are so money. Oh, no, you are so money. (laughs) We could go on forever. I've been wanting to meet you in person for the the longest time. I feel like we were just talking before we got on the podcast. We have probably – we run in similar circles. Um, I, I bow to you. You are a phenomenal woman. I bow woman. to you. Don't even be silly. I have a lady crush <laughs> on you from afar. It's happening. It's mutual. It's, it's super real. mutual. I want to first congratulate you. You know, you've done, you've accomplished so much. Um, I, you know, I, I read your bio before we got on right now, and um, you know, just Thank to you. brag about you a little bit more. You are now. You can add author to your resume, to your bio, and the book is called Rich bitch. Tell us about it. You know, I I think that every year there's a personal finance book aimed at the audience you're going after and some are some are successful, some are not. I think timing has a lot to do with it, do with it. I think the hunger in the marketplace has a lot to do with it and I think honestly 2015 rich bitch going to be a popular book. Timing is right. Audience is ready for it and you have a very unique voice. So tell us, you know, how the stars are aligning for you and and uh, what the book promises. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. From your mouth to God's ear, Farnoosh. I mean, for me, it was really important. And yes, there have been so many awesome books who are reaching the same target demo that you and I both are. This young woman who wants to join a money conversation but might be too scared to ask dumb questions or feels 
intimidated by the Wall Street Journal like my former self did. For me, it was important to create like a skinny bitch for money, a money book that she would pick up in the front of store, not necessarily in the personal finance section, that used real language because the language is sometimes the most intimidating part, as you know, about the money world. So I wanted to write a book with attitude and confidence and a book that didn't make you feel like you were talking about money, but Sneak Attack gave you a 12-step plan mm -hmm. to getting your financial life together, borrowed from our friends at other 12-step re recovery programs. What did you read, you know, in your journey to become, uh, you know, the finance expert? What, what are your resources? You know, it's so crazy. I am the least likely person to be a finance expert. Uh, I grew up in an immigrant household. There was never a Wall Street Journal or a Financial Times on the kitchen counter. Like, forget about that. My boyfriend in high school said he wanted to be a hedge fund manager, and I thought the dude wanted to be in gardening. Like, no <laughs> joke. I was so clueless, and I kept smiling and nodding. I talk about this concept a lot before I joined the conversation, like pretending that I knew what he was talking about. By the way, he dumped me because I couldn't hang out with his Wall Street friends, and fast forward over a decade later, mm. I think his Wall Street friends want to hang out with me. Yeah, um, just a little. But all kidding aside, you know, I got a job when I was 18 on the floor of the Chicago Merck and I was thrown into the deep end. I wanted to be in broadcasting and I got a job in financial news and I thought, OK, I can figure this out. I can fake it till I make it to some extent. And I was thrown into the deep end and I needed to learn this language that scared me for so long, very quickly. And once I realized that it was a language like anything else, at first it felt like I was a foreigner in my own country and that it sounded like Chinese. But then I spoke the language and I was like, this isn't that serious. There just wasn't a Rosetta Stone for me that spoke my language and helped me understand this jargon in a fun and easy way. So that's why I wanted to create something like this. And don't you think that there's almost this conspiracy, like I'm into conspiracy theories, and I think that the financial Ooh. institutions, some of them, it, it's it's to their advantage to make all of this seem so complicated, you know, so difficult, because then we have to pay them to translate it for us when really it's not that difficult. It's, 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 it just, you just need some, maybe, maybe a Nicole Lappin to kind of walk you through the logistics. And a Farnoosh, of course, absolutely, because, you know, for me, I didn't work at a bank. I didn't get my MBA. You know, I got my MBA at the School of Hard Knocks. So I don't use that fancy jargon. And I felt like such an outsider growing up, you know, where I looked into this old boys club that felt like it had red velvet ropes on the outside and it was so exclusive and like, oh my God, I can't get into that and hang out with my hedge fund boyfriends, Wall Street friends. But once I got into this club, I realized hey, it's actually not that serious. Like short is not the opposite of tall. It's the opposite of long. It means something's going in the pooper, period, end of story. <laughs> That's, it's not that serious. So, you know, for me, that, that was, you know, maybe a conspiracy theory that I got in front of because I, I try to debunk conventional financial wisdom in a lot of ways, and you do too. You, you know, when you stop accepting the way it is and start thinking for yourself, that's when you feel most empowered. I think that goes back to every aspect of your life. When I was growing up, I ate meat because most families eat meat. And when I was like 12, I 
thought, do I really want to eat meat? You know, I became a vegetarian because I could finally say, wait, does this work for me? Do I need to do this? And I think everybody has that same journey in the finance world as well. For women especially, it's we have unique challenges, not because we're biologically uh, disadvantaged to learning about money, but I think because society almost, were, there's this uh, sort of this negative relationship that women have with money sometimes because we're told that, you know, this is a man's field. We're told that it's too complicated. We're told that it's not even sometimes polite, you know, to be aggressive, to talk about money. That's all BS, obviously. We know that. But don't you think yeah. that has really hindered women's ability to excel financially? And I kind of wish we had more female role models, you know, in that in this well, space. You and me, sister, take it over the world. Oh, you know, I think women have fallen behind a lot in terms of financial literacy behind men. But I think that's changing, as you know. You know, it's very real right now. You talk about the timing when we first kicked off this conversation. The timing is ripe. It is a new normal. You know, anchoring uh, on CNBC and on Bloomberg during the greatest financial crisis of our time, I realized that women are taking their destiny by the balls. Uh, they're looking their destiny in the eye. They're, you know, starting their own cupcake shop or, you know, uh, alpaca farm or whatever, mm-hmm. like this fun employment movement is taking over. And so I think we want to speak the same language, but we want to do it in our own terms. And so to become financially literate is something that's so important, but it's so quickly changing because, you know, we're not at a desk. We're not looking necessarily for a raise from our boss or sitting in a cubicle. We're, you know, starting a podcast at our home so you could be with your child, which is awesome. And we're, you know, becoming entrepreneurs. So I think the conversation needs to change. And, you know, I hope that young women can look to you or or to me as a resource to say, you know, you don't need to be born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And certainly you don't need a man to join this conversation. Amen. Well, you transitioned us well, Nicole, because I actually want to go down memory lane a little bit with you and, and learn more about Nicole growing up with an immigrant family. What's your biggest money memory growing up and, and the memory necessarily that kind of shaped your mindset growing up about what money means and and how you want to lead your life financially. What was the biggest money memory that you have? You know, when I grew up as a first-generation American, uh, like a lot of other first-generation Americans, my household used cash a lot. Um, Perhaps you can relate to that. Yes. Um, And it sounds very gangster and cool, but it was so the opposite of that. I think in hindsight, now that I, you know, have become so uh, financially literate in my older, wiser years, um, I I realized that that was actually quite sound advice. But at the time, I felt like a total loser. (laughs) I felt like an (laughs) outsider. And, you know, going out with friends, I felt really awkward because I was the girl that always used green cash and never had even a debit card. Um, And so I remember there was one time where I went to dinner with my girlfriends and everybody threw down their credit card or debit card and I only had cash or or a check. And I felt so uncomfortable because it was, I had $20 and it was, I think a little bit more than that, but I didn't want to be that awkward girl who asked the waitress, Oh, can you, you know, divvy this up? I I certainly wanted to divide it. Even I just didn't have plastic to throw down. And so it was at that moment where I no longer wanted to feel like an outsider or that weird girl um, who had to 
literally at a fancy French restaurant uh, pay with a check with her girlfriend. It's like, I didn't want, I felt like the music stopped during this whole interaction. And it was then and there that I was like, I need to get it together and get it all. I need to take control of uh, confronting the idea of credit, confronting the idea of what it means to take control of my own life. It's not, you know, my parents' life. It's not the mores that I grew up with. Sometimes we fall back on that as a clutch so often, um, or as a crutch so often, I should say. Um, but it's your life, and you know, it's the, it was that moment where I was like, okay, this is my destiny, and it's up to me to put on my big girl undies and <laughs> make a life for myself. I love that story, and honestly, I think cash, especially today, it, we we. We take it for granted. I think there is something to be said about using cash. There is a recourse that happens when you use it because you're like, okay, I'm paying cash for this. There's a limited amount of it in my wallet. Once it's out of my wallet, it's gone. Do I really want what I'm buying? And I think in some ways that's a healthy thing. It's, a health, it's healthy to transact with cash once in a while as opposed to all plastic. But I, I hear totally you. Agree. You needed to yeah. get some credit, girl. I know. I did. <laughs> and then I went into debt and I made all these mistakes. And, you know, for me, it was really important to finally become really raw and vulnerable mm. and um, talk about my stories warts and all because those are the way more fun stories to talk about well, anyway. We'll get to those warts momentarily. Oh, sister, I have more issues than Vogue, let me tell you. Okay. So. Um, well, first, though, just to kick us off a little bit and set the stage, what is, what is one of your big financial philosophies, one that you teach, but one that you also really practice because it helps to kind of set the tone for the rest of your financial planning and choices that you make with your money? You know, I think it stems from that very story that I told you about, whether it was being that awkward girl um, with dinner at dinner at, with her girlfriends or being the girl in a sort of Elle Woods, except the brunette version of Elle Woods moment where her boyfriend dumped her because she couldn't join a money conversation. You know, it was realizing that money is cultural, that money is not about stocks and bonds and numbers and crazy math and that you don't need to be a mathematician to get your financial life together, that it goes back to your goals. And first, if you come up with your goals in all aspects of your life, from family to fun, which I do believe you should take out uh, fun money in cash, but you know, I, I think that it, you know, within that part of your budgeting is really important still. So I've become like friends with cash again in a healthy way and also your your essentials your your financial life to create goals for all three of those f's my favorite f words um mm -hmm. is really important because you then realize what you want out of all aspects of your life and then you realize you need money for those things but it becomes much more palatable much more interesting when you first see how your goals relate to money um before actually thinking about like crazy numbers that sound like a peanuts want 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 gallery right, right right goals carry price tags yeah sister Okay, warts. Uh, let's talk about financial warts in your life. The biggest financial failure that you experienced, Nicole, and how you recovered. And um, and yeah, I mean, take us to the darkest period. We want we want indulge us. Oh my goodness. Um, one of my darkest periods. Yeah. So when I finally did go into the credit world, um, I was an anchor at CNN. I started really young. And so I moved to Atlanta when I was 20, 21. And uh, I got into a, a 
$5,000 of credit card debt. And at that time, I thought I needed everything. You know, I needed this dress for this and this event. I needed a two-bedroom apartment in Atlanta because why not? Um, and it just kept escalating. And I no longer became my parents' child. They, you know, my father would have been turning in his grave had he seen what I was doing. Because at the same time, I was still you know, accustomed to saving green cash. So I had this safe in my kitchen, under my kitchen sink, um, as like a, a true, you know, uh, daughter of this upbringing that I had, where I was putting green cash in the safe while I was accumulating a boatload of debt, which was crazy. And I didn't know how I would get out of it. And I, you know, was panicking. And so I did it really methodically. Um, and I, you know, I came up with a number that, felt, I think it was $208 and I did it every single month and I put um, what I wanted out of my future life um, as reminders to myself. I, at that point, I wanted like an Anderson Cooper style camera. And so I put that on my <laughs> laptop and I was like, this is what I'm working for right now. And I, I slowly paid it off and I, I, had, I became um, healthier in my relationship with cash that I would save and I still have green cash now. But I've, I've, be, you know, stru uh, struck a balance between uh, the, the credit that I use and the cash that I use as well. But that was a really dark time for me. Um, even, um, you know, I still love eBay, but I would sell my clothes on eBay after work, even from the CNN Center. Like I talk about this in my book, people would be like, Are, is this coming from CNN? Like, your <laughs> And I'd be like, oh, yes, you know, it's happening. And so I, I, I remember there was one time where I sold my old shoes on eBay and this guy wrote me a, an email back. He was like, I'll, I'll give you double if you send me a picture with your shoe, your feet in them. <laughs> oh, like, gross. Did you oh do it? God, delete. <laughs> Like, I don't need it that bad. Oh, my gosh. I was going to say, I mean, you could have added a premium to all your all your um, clothing because you're like, well, it was worn when the whole outfit. And then maybe if you interviewed someone really prominent while wearing the outfit. I mean, that's those are all, like, good qualities to have in, in things you're going to buy on eBay. Uh, y you know, here's the – I didn't – I didn't – Call time, me next time, I, Nicole, okay? I, just That's right. Yeah. I will. I'll position it a little better, but, but good Thank for you. you that, you know, I just interviewed somebody who said that every week they go around their house and they find something to put on Craigslist to sell because that's just how much stuff they have. But also to the point that it's quite easy to sell things, you know, these days, somebody wants, if, if you bought it, somebody else would probably be willing to buy it from you. Totally. Or rent it. Like mm -hmm. this whole share economy idea where you can rent your dog, you can rent your tent, you can rent your home, you can rent your car, you know, there's, I still sell stuff. Um, my, I do like a, a sweep of my clothes. I sell some of the fancier ones on real, real. And, mm -hmm. you know, I do that now. I don't, I think there's nothing wrong with that, no matter what position you are in life. Right. Well, um, okay. Let's flip it a little bit and talk about a so money moment, like a time in your life that you really experienced, um, financial, a financial win. And I actually, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say maybe it was when you left CNBC to start your own company. I, uh, you know, I've been following your career and I think I, uh, it's just, uh, I love that. I don't want to steal your story, but I, I, uh, I'm just curious, what would you say would be your financial so money moment? Yeah, that was a really important time to me. Um, 
you know, I at that point had been anchoring and people didn't realize for a decade. And, you know, like I said, I started so I started my career so early and I tried to look older and wear shoulder pads and tease my hair. And I finally became my age. It took me a really long time to do that and become comfortable in my own skin and in my own voice, because 10 years ago, I would have never, I would have died thinking about admitting these stories to you right now. But I think it takes a while to say, okay, you know, I'm cool with myself. I'm cool with what I've done. And, you know, I'm just going to be as authentic as possible because I think people can see beyond that. And, you know, you want your viewers to trust you. So I felt like I was so lucky to be talking to CEOs and politicians and like the richest, most powerful people, uh, you know, in our country. But I wasn't reaching the audience that needed this information most. And I think that audience was my former self. And so for me, it was really important to create uh, financial content that didn't feel like it was, you know, there was a ticker on it and it was scary. And I wanted to start a production company, as you mentioned, to create accessible financial content um, in a variety of ways that I, right at that point, was exclusive and could only create for one network. So I wanted to reach uh, a broader audience. So it was really important to me to say, okay, I can join a talk show. And as you've been on every talk show on the planet, um, you, you, maybe you feel the same way. It felt most empowering to me when I was on shows that weren't specifically about money, but you were bringing in like sneak attack money content. So when I was on, when I became a regular on Wendy Williams' show, I was like, first of all, when I joined a few seasons ago, I was like, wait, do you want me on your show? Like, are you sure? The nerdy Jewish finance girl? <laughs> like, do you, are you me? And, um, and it became so awesome to realize that yes money could relate to stuff that wendy is talking about like saving money or you know money can become relevant to a show like entertainment tonight or the insider where young girls who are looking for the role models you talked about earlier you know are looking for kim kardashian stories but all of a sudden like wha-bam smarty mm -hmm. pants content in a party dress is happening and we're talking about the business of hollywood which feels like a mon money story no it feels like a hollywood story but really it's a money story because you're following the money trail of, you know, Michael Jackson's estate or Jessica Simpson's baby bump or whatever that story might be of the day. So that's the most rewarding stuff for me. That's my so money moment. Yeah. And like I said earlier, the timing of your book couldn't be better because I think now with women, you know, earning more in their relationships and just starting, you know, like those, uh, those, those businesses and uh, just as we know, women have managed the purse strings forever, but now we're really demanding, uh, guidance and leadership and um, strategies and no longer is it reactive it's very proactive and so I think your book is really going to hit uh, a high note thank you I think it's so much part of the zeitgeist right now mm -hmm. I really saw that trend I mean whether it's you know going off and starting your own business right now I think you know young women are looking to be like a Sarah Blakely and or the girls who started Birchbox or Rent the Runway or whatever I think we're seeing these really great young powerful women who have taken control of their own money situation and I think a lot of young people want to emulate that but it's you know what I've seen is that the macro tailwinds are that it's so much easier to become your own boss, which is great, except for the fact that it's so easy to become your own boss that you can go to Staples and anyone can get a CEO business card, but then you're like, oh crap, now what? Right. And so there's only so much fake it till you make it that you can do until you need to become real. And 
and become a rich bitch. A and mm -hmm. become a rich bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk habits, Nicole. I want to learn your rituals and, and maybe just one, you know, a, a financial ritual that you practice that helps to keep your money where it needs to be. My financial rituals. Wow. I am all about little baby steps and crazy organization. Um, and so when I say create goals for your three F's, for me, it was really important to first start with my family goals. Um, so that was a ritual that I keep going back to all the time because so right in Rich Bitch, I had a mentor in the television world who saw me uh, on a show and uh, brought me actually onto her show. And I died because I had a girl crush on her as well. And so when she called me, I was like, oh my God, uh, what is happening? Mm -hmm. uh, and one day she called me, she, she said, you know, most of the times, like, let's talk about your performance on the air, whatever. And I ask who it was. Uh, I, you know, I don't name her because that's not the point of the story, but she, she's a rock star in the television world. And she said to me one day, uh, do you want to get married? And I was like, Oh, you, to you? Yes. obviously." <laughs> but, um, she was like, no, seriously, do you want to get married? And I said, I don't know. And, um, she said, well, you're dating someone. And I said, yeah. And she said, is he's the one? And I was like, I don't know. I'm really focused on my career right now. Like, can we talk about that actually? Yeah. But it made me feel really out of control that I didn't have a, an answer to my mentor's question. And so she said that your family goals need to be part of your game plan. And that includes marriage. And um, from then and on, I have always written down my one, three, five, seven, ten-year goals when it comes to family. And that sounds like we've all met those girls who need to get married in Prego yesterday. And like, I never wanted to be that girl. But I realized that when you look at your goals in totality and not silo, you know, your career goals or your family goals, it becomes so much um, easier to create a cohesive narrative for your life. And studies have shown women who create cohesive narratives for their lives are more likely to be successful. So when I first wrote it down, I had like my one year goal was make time for dates even when I was exhausted or wanted to be working. Year three was date one person seriously. Year five was get married or engaged. And it felt weird writing that down even. Year seven was consider having a kid. Year 10 was consider having more kids. I mean, these goals have changed constantly. I met a guy who uh, was divorced and already had a kid and then my whole goals changed. But every time I, I go back and my ritual is to revisit this and um, and it gives me so much less anxiety about it because I can actually answer the question for myself. And I think that's what I tell a lot of women who feel so all over the place when they're asked this very simple question, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. It's a question we get all the time, whether it's from a mentor or an employer or employee or a family member or a friend. You know, the more hemming and hawing we're doing, the more out of control we feel and the less laser focused we feel and the more you know, likely we are to fail with it. Well, that was really well said. And I would add to that, that I think sometimes as a young professional woman, you feel like it's not it's not appropriate to say honestly and intimately that you want to find Mr. Right or your love partner or your soulmate and you want family. When we are asked, what do you want? We necessarily think we have to talk about career, you know, and I think that uh, that part of the happiness, you know, diagram is often ignored, you know, and we're not taught how to be um 
how to pursue, I should say, you know, a healthy relationship, how to pursue family, how to afford these things, because uh, maybe it's thought that we'll just, it'll just, they'll just happen and we sort of take them for granted. But as uh, we all know, it, it takes work, you know, it takes conscious effort. But sometimes we're not encouraged to really uh, talk about that stuff ahead of any other thing because it's sort of like, well, you know, um, you should be more focused on your career. And at least that's my, my take on things. I feel like I was always raised to have this mentality of getting educated and getting my career together and, oh, that love thing will happen. You know, it'll all figure itself out. It doesn't. Totally. You know, and I think that needs to be back, put back into the conversation. And I'm glad that that mentor did that for you because um, I don't think that that's something that we hear often. I, you know, I a thousand percent agree with you. I think you, if you're not happy in your personal life, you're not happy in your life in general. It's all part of one life. And they also need to reconcile. So if, you know, I, I tell women sometimes, like, look at your goals all together. Do you want to be a trauma surgeon and a stay-at-home mom? Well, like, I'm sorry, but that doesn't actually work. So mm-hmm. they need to reconcile and they all need to be compatible. Exactly. And then you need money for those. Right, right. Goals first moolah second correct i'm a no okay nicole we're almost wrapped thanks so much so far this has been fantastic everyone get the book rich bitch um i'm probably gonna have to make this an explicit episode on itunes but it'll be worth it it'll be worth it let's do some so money fill in the blank let's let's take off our shoes and just be a little crazy here if i won the lottery tomorrow what would nicole lappin do if you got a hundred million dollars what's the first thing you would do um I, I, don't, I think I would not do anything different. I really don't. I mean, I think I would um, get up and get coffee and continue on with my day. I mean, I right now, what I do is not for money, but um, I know this sounds so cheesy and I'm going to sound so Pollyanna-ish, but that would, whatever money that would, uh, I would get would go to the awesome charities that I work with um, and for as ambassadors and um, have started programs for. So I would continue on. I'd be my same old self, still like buying stuff on eBay. Um, <laughs> and if and if I didn't, would you just come over and smack me? Well, I'm, I'm happy to know that you're not going to do anything with it because I'll come over and I'll figure out some things. Okay, good. <laughs> the one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? Lattes. Lattes. It's so nice to hear that. So refreshing. Totally. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, a lattes aside, what's a guilty pleasure? That I spend a lot of money on my guilty pleasure are my blowouts. Mm. Where do you go? Dry bar. Yeah. It's in, and then your hair is done for like, I hate drying my own hair. It's such a chore and it never turns out as nice as when they get it all done in the salon. And then a little bit of dry shampoo. It lasts for a week. I think that pays most dividends with your time, too. Yeah, for sure. Watching long hair takes a very long time. So <laughs> Especially when you that. work on television, you know. And then I agree. That, yeah. Uh, one thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Is that it's not about couponing and nickel and diming yourself. If you actually earn more money, you don't need to save more money. Captain, mm. yes. Yes, earning. Let's bring that into the conversation. When I donate money, and you mentioned you're very charitable, I like to give to blank because? Um, right now I'm on the board of an organization called Women in Need, and um, 
and it's win in the city and it helps homeless women and children around New York City. And I started a program within that called Lost Girls that helps young women get um, blazers and work attire. Because for me, my first blazer when I first started um, my first job when I was 16 was so important to me. It just made me feel like a badass rock star and I wore it to death until there were like pit stains and seams ripping out. So I try to get back in that way. Oh, that's great. I was trying to find a place to donate some suits and like work gear too. So maybe I'll have to connect with you on that yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Please. And finally, I'm Nicole Lappin and I'm so money because. I'm a rich bitch. <laughs> you need to think about that one. Um, I am so money. I've been called a bitch. I don't know if you have. This is, if you don't mind, I would love to ask you a question. Yeah. Um, I've been called a bitch in a derogatory sense throughout my career, but I think there's nothing wrong with being strong and confident. So that's why I'm sort of taking back the word and owning it in an empowering way, not in a derogatory way. Have you been called a bitch? I'm pretty sure behind my back. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Bam. Nicole Lapin, thank you so much. Thank you. Wishing you continued success with this book. It's going to change lives. And um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Nicole, head over to NicoleLappin.com or you can follow her on Twitter at Nicole Lappin. And definitely check out Nicole's new book, Rich Bitch, A Simple 12-Step Plan for Getting Your Financial Life Together. We've got all this information at SoMoneyPodcast.com where you can also find the transcript and comments from our episode. And I want to keep hearing from you. I love your questions. Love your comments. Keep them coming, folks. Head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away whatever's on your mind. And if you love what you're hearing, you want the podcast to continue shining its light, please spend a minute or two to hop onto iTunes and leave your honest review. It's the single most impactful way, really, besides subscribing and listening, of course, and telling all your friends to support the podcast and uh, avoid it from, you know, falling into the land of obscurity uh, in the iTunes stores. There's just so much content there. You want to be able to have good placement and good reviews get you that good placement. And as a thank you, I'm selecting one new reviewer every week to receive a free 15-minute money blitz, money session with me over Skype, one-on-one, -on -one, you and I talking about whatever you want to talk about, undivided attention, I am there for you. So please, when you do leave a review, email me farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com to let me know and so that I can enter you into that drawing. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Thanks to my guest, Nicole Lappin, and I hope your day is so money.